From a young age, I was passionate about nutrition and helping people with their health. When I started practicing in the field, I realized that physiology and psychology are intimately intertwined. Some of my clients just needed to know what to do to feel better. And many of my clients knew what they should be doing, they just weren't doing it. Underneath it all, unconscious conditioning was getting in the way of their success. This drove me to uplevel my skill set and coach my clients to remove some of their mental roadblocks and reconnect with the wisdom of the body. I learned about the importance of embodiment and harnessing the power of emotions to get more of what you want from life. I started offering intensive one-to-one coaching packages and I launched my Grounded Goddess group program. I also wanted to create a free offering to help women understand the power of the mind, body, and emotions. I created the Grounded Goddess Blueprint. The Grounded Goddess Blueprint is a 43-page guide that will help you reconnect with what you want from life and teach you how to build your roadmap to create it. It will help you understand why you often find yourself going round in circles and engaging with self-sabotage. If you feel stuck, overwhelmed, or frustrated with lack of results, you want the Grounded Goddess Blueprint. If you want clarity, understanding, and more success, you want the Grounded Goddess Blueprint. Just go over to groundedgoddess.co.uk forward slash blueprint and grab your copy. That's groundedgoddess.co.uk forward slash blueprint. I believe one of the most important things that we can do is give ourselves the gift of truly nourishing the soul through time spent in self-inquiry, moments that still the mind and practices that light us up and allow us to reconnect to the child within. Move, Breathe, Create is a platform that celebrates soul nourishment. Move your body to get out of your head. Breathe to give yourself mental clarity and calm. Create without expectation to fuel your inspiration and delight your senses. Come and join us over at movebreathecreate.com and use the code kombucha for your first month free. I'm looking forward to seeing you inside the community. Over the past year, I've been on a healing adventure. I've spent the past 12 months recovering from brain fog, pain, and chronic fatigue. Like any good adventure story, there have been highs and lows, losses and gains, and an incredible amount of personal growth and lessons learned. This journey has made me a better health practitioner and a more empathetic coach. To add more meaning to my experience, I wanted to create something that would help others to increase their energy, clear their mind, and restore their health. I created the Brain Fog Bible. The Brain Fog Bible is a 47-page guide that covers what I call the low-hanging fruit. It explores the most important areas to be assessed and addressed if you want more from life, but your brain and your body are holding you back. You can grab a copy at brainfogbible.com forward slash download. That's brainfogbible.com forward slash download. Hi, I'm Shay, and welcome to Kombucha and Color. Kombucha and Color is a weekly podcast hosted by me, Shay Dyer, a yoga teacher and creative graphic designer, and Anna Marsh, a functional medicine practitioner and women's health coach with a love of all things health and fitness. 
This podcast is here to inspire women to embrace health and live life bright. You can find more about me, Shay, at shaydyer.com. You can find out more about me, Anna, at annamarshnutrition.co.uk. And each week we will be bringing you inspiring content for a healthier and happier mind, body, heart, and soul. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Kombucha and Color. I'm super duper excited to bring you this episode today because today I get to interview one of my closest friends, Francesca Leporati. Francesca, apart from being just an amazing human being, is a registered nutritional therapist like myself. And she works with women to rebalance their bodies, to feel better, and to thrive. And I really wanted to get her on the show. I can't believe it's actually taken this long, Francesca, to get you on the show. But I wanted to get her on the show today because I feel like we've talked about hormones quite a bit through all the various episodes, but we've never had someone come on and really address what happens after you turn 40. Because I know for my body as well, it's almost like every half decade little things start to change. You know, the body I had when I was 20 was not the same body I had when I was 25. And the body I had when I was 25 was not the same after I turned 30. And last year I turned 35 and I almost felt like I turned 35 and something just changed almost immediately. And the body I have now is so different to the body I had in my early 30s. So I know that you have just turned, am I allowed to say, you are. <laughs> so last year, a year ago, you just turned 40. And because of that, that's an area of immense passion for you. So welcome to the show. I'm so delighted to have you here to chat with us today. And really just over to you. Tell me a little bit more about this area of health and why it's important that we speak about it today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. It's so exciting. And obviously, with us being such good friends, it's just lovely to, to be here with you on your own podcast. So thank you. I think for me, the passion comes from, like as you said, the fact that I just turned, well, I didn't just, it feels like I just, but I turned 40 last December. So I'll be 41 next month. And I think, um, like you were saying about the way the body changes every kind of five years, I just kind of didn't really think about it in that much detail until I did actually turn 40. And it's only kind of in these last 12 months that I've really accepted and embraced that, yes, things have really changed. And they did actually start from, like you said as well, from 35, I really, really started to notice differences. But the problem with me is that I didn't change anything. I just, I noticed these things. One of the biggest things I'll say, because we'll talk about this more today as well. One of the biggest things I noticed is my ability to cope with the type of exercise that I was doing. And I noticed that the detrimental effects it was having, but I didn't accept it at the time. I just kind of noticed it and thought, oh, well, I'll keep going. And I did keep going and I did keep going. It was only a couple of years ago when I started to realize I needed to change that and embrace that I was getting older and my hormones were changing. So it's a real passion area for me because I just think that a lot of women don't really know about this phase. They sort of think you can just do everything in your 20s late 20s, early 30s, you just do the same thing and then you'll hit kind of menopause age around 50-ish or so. That's it. And that maybe you'll change things up at that age. But there is this in-between phase, which is a great phase. But if we just understand more about it, we can work with it, which is exactly where I am right now. And I'm looking forward to my 40s now, whereas a few years ago, I probably wasn't. Yeah. And I think what you said is so important is 
we or I definitely notice with clients tend to just normalize so much, which is common, but not normal. Yeah. So what I mean by that is even before 40 with like PMS and hormones and things like that, people just accept, oh, very heavy bleeding or having to double up pads and tampons, or people just accept that they have to sideline a week of their cycle because they feel so fatigued or that they have very, very heavy pain. And it's normal to just book a day off work and take some painkillers and a hot water bottle because so many women suffer. It's normalized, but it's actually, these are all kind of like little canaries in the coal mine. And I think even though we're talking about over 40 health and hormones over 40 today, actually some of the preventative strategies can start in your 20s, in your 30s. And we, we want to be thinking about these things before we hit 40. And I know you're going to go in and start to talk about the nitty gritty about what those things are. But I think it's really important before we dive into everything else just to say, this is not just for you if you're 40 plus. This is yeah. for you if you have a uterus, if you have, if you're a, if you, if you have periods, you know, even if you are already transitioning through menopause, I'm sure there's also things you'll get from this as well. So before we go into all the nitty gritty and share all the information that people are desperate to hear, let's dive into your personal story a little bit, because mm -hmm. I know people don't go down this career path unless they've had their own experience and their own journey. So tell everyone a little bit more about you and how you arrived at this point. Okay, well, from about 18, 19 years old, I started to suffer with mostly depression at that time and anxiety. And at the time, it was it was unexplained. There was no changes. There was nothing. There was no reason for it. Everything was as it was before, you know, home life. Everything was pretty good. So I didn't really understand it. And then it kind of progressed from depression, anxiety, but then into major IBS. Sometimes hospitalization was required with how bad it was. There, were, there was a time I was rushed. My mum actually rushed me to hospital because we thought my appendix was rupturing and so many different symptoms that I was going through. I had all kind of different investigations at the hospital. I was referred to, you know, different specialists and everything was clear. Every single test I ever had just said that my health was in tip top shape. Various doctors I saw for depression as well kind of said, no, you know, any kind of test I had or any examinations, they just decided that everything was completely normal. I was offered antidepressants at the time. And when I look back now, I'm actually quite proud of, well, kind of impressed that at the time I had that intuitive kind of response to it. But I just sort of said, I'm not saying that they're wrong at all. Antidepressants definitely have their place. Absolutely. But for me at that time, I kind of knew that wasn't the answer. I knew there was more I needed to explore. So basically time went on, 22, 23, 24, things just got, I guess, worse and worse. I gained about three stone, again, unexplained. I had migraines about three or four times a week, if not a low-grade headache at least every day. I was living on things like Pro Plus. I don't know if, you, I don't know if they make that anymore, but it's, it's like a caffeinated pill that was sort of to just kind of keep my energy levels up because my energy was just on the floor every day. And for someone in my young, you know, early 20s, it just wasn't how things should be. So in the end, I, I was about 25 years old and I saw an advert for a nutritional therapist. And this is something I had just never even considered. I never even thought to look at the link between food and how you felt. I had no interest in healthy food or anything at that time, but I just went to see this lady. And honestly, from there, the rest is, is just history. So she just changed my life completely. She kind of started my journey because from then, 
it was book after book after book. And then at 27, 28, I decided I'm going to study nutritional therapy. I realized you could train in it. And then I started to do that, eventually qualified kind of in the end, it was six years later because I had to get science A-levels and everything before I could go into it. But it just transformed my health and well-being. It took a long time because I gradually changed things, but just step by step, every single small change I made had a really significant impact. And then that just kept compounding on top of one another. And by the time I was 30, I felt amazing. I felt better than I had ever hoped to feel in my 20s. And it's kind of been that way ever since that I've just kept progressing as as I've got older. So yeah, that's kind of how I came to be what I do today. And so what were some of the big changes that you made that had the most significant impact? And you don't have to go into the details, but maybe Mm -hmm. just talking about some broad areas of things that really helped. Well, I mean, initially the, the tiniest change, but the most significant impact was water. So for example, we were talking about my headaches, my migraines, there was loads causing that, but hydration for me was a big problem and it was something I didn't know, but the nutritional therapist obviously highlighted that. So I simply started to increase my water intake, my headaches got better, my skin started to clear. Nothing was completely, you know, overnight just switched off, changed, but things improved so quickly from just making these small changes. And then it was things like switching my carbohydrates from the refined white flour products over to the more nutrient dense stuff, increasing vegetables, changing up my exercise, sleeping. So all these kind of changes, just I did them gradually, but the compounded effect was was amazing. Incredible. So in terms of now, like the, the population that you're very passionate working with, why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? I think most people know about menopause, but some people are like, Perry, what? Like they don't know that there's this other phase of life, which is called perimenopause. So do you want to maybe break that down a little bit more for people and explain maybe those transitions and those changes that happen after about the age of 40? Yeah, sure. So I think, like you said, people do just believe that we start as a young girl, we start our periods, we start having a menstrual cycle every month, and then we just carry on until we get to around 50 when we cease to have any menstruation, and that is menopause. But that phase in between, I mean, the way I, I like to describe it is you've got the pre-menopausal, pre-menopausal years, which is where we are from when we're a young girl and we start having periods and we have regular, you know, for the most part, we have regular cycles. And then perimenopausal is 12, anywhere between the 12 and two years before menopause. So as to, to put that into perspective, you could start around 38 years old or and anywhere up to kind of 55, just depending when menopause starts for you. So it's around the 12 or two years leading up to the menopause. And obviously the menopause is when it's defined by when you've had a whole year with absolutely no period at all. That would be how you would define that you reach the menopause. So that perimenopausal phase could be, you know, 12 years for some people. Even some people have started going into that phase around 35. So you mentioned earlier, you know, noticing those the changes, the significant changes once you hit 35. And I do believe for most women, it starts around then. The symptoms that we're going to talk about in a moment may not necessarily get more significant until you're kind of mid 40s, but it definitely starts there. And like you said, it's like, we need to know this stuff earlier so that we can start creating the diet, exercise and lifestyle habits 
as the foundation for a healthier, more enjoyable perimenopause and menopause. So it's a time where we have lower progesterone. So what happens at the start of perimenopause is the brain, the communication between the brain and the hormones starts to change. And estrogen and progesterone in an ideal world for the, for the, for the normal years that we're cycling are in a lovely balance for a lot of women, they experience imbalances, obviously, but if everything was working perfectly, estrogen and progesterone would be working in the lovely, in harmony with each other. But so you've got like estrogen, which is kind of, I heard somebody describe it as the diva hormone. So like the diva lady. So estrogen is helping us have confidence. It's giving us our uh, female characteristics, the curves, the lips, for example, making us feel outgoing. Its main job is to thicken our uterus lining and it surges just before we ovulate in the middle the mid part of our cycle which i know you've spoken you've spoken about the cycle a lot on this podcast so people can refer back to that to hear more i suppose but once we then ovulate in the middle of our cycle we then produce progesterone and progesterone is kind of like the again this i'm stealing this from from someone i've heard it from is the calming best friend to estrogen. So it's like the yin to estrogen's yang. So we have to have that balance. We couldn't just have lots of estrogen all month long because although it's great to have all that confidence and that outgoingness, we do need a, a nice balance. So what's happening in the perimenopausal years where that communication starts to break down between the brain and the hormones, progesterone starts to fall. And we have we just end up with less progesterone during that phase and also estrogen is on a roller coaster ride it's just going up and down and some of those drops can be so some of those peaks and drops can be so significant that they cause these erratic symptoms and then coupled with low progesterone will experience kind of the main symptoms would be things like increased anxiety trouble sleeping mood issues but also hot flashes so those kind of those are the three most common things that you would experience in that time. And for some women, they're just very, very mild. For other women, they get they get more and more exacerbated as they as they go along. So it's almost like that calming best friend breaks up with the the diva, and then the diva in her grief just goes on a bender and goes a little bit crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> perfect example yeah explanation exactly and progesterone being the calming best friend she calms the nervous system she's the anti-anxiety hormone that's what she's known as her main job um, where i said that estrogen's main job is to can the lining just before ovulation so that if we have a pregnancy the lining is able to hold that pregnancy but progesterone's main job is to hold that pregnancy in place so that's why we produce so much progesterone after we ovulate. And then even if, if we don't fall pregnant, which is obviously happening for most women most months, they're not specifically trying to get pregnant, progesterone drops naturally in a normal cycle. But it's just that in perimenopause, we're not ovulating as much. So some months we'll have what they call anovulatory cycles. So we'll still have a normal cycle. It will feel normal, look normal. But little do we know, we haven't actually ovulated. So therefore, we haven't produced progesterone because we only produce it as a result of ovulation. So we just end up with much lower progesterone levels. So that's that's where all the anxiety comes from. And also the lack of the kind of sleep issues as well. So what are people looking out for? I know you've mentioned some of the symptoms. That I don't know, maybe if you've got a client in mind, almost like a, a mini case study, I appreciate I'm totally putting you on the spot right now. So, <laughs> But like someone's coming to you and they're like, I've got this symptom, this symptom, this symptom, this symptom, and, they're, you, and you know their age and you're like, ha, yes, I think I know what's going on with you. It's perimenopause. What might be the red flags? So I can think of one 
in particular, one kind of case is a 43 year old woman. So another thing as well is that as we're having children later in life these days, which is which is great, it can add more stress to the situation. So this particular lady, 43 years old, almost 44, she has three small children between the ages of six and 11, and they're all clustered in that age. So she's got three small children. She's also running her own business, working from home. She doesn't run it full time as such, but over part time. And she's got elderly parents. So she's quite stressed, worried about them all the time at, at this stage in her life. It's you know normal that they would be elderly. So she's saying that she has migraines. She's like, I don't know where this has all come from. I suddenly have these new migraines, but they're happening once or twice a week now. It never used to be like this. She's saying, I used to be able to train in the gym a few times a week, lifting weights or lots of HIIT training. She used to do five HIIT sessions a week. Now she, she's just about managing one and she's really confused as to why that's the case. And then she has things like night sweats that she's saying have just come out of nowhere, hot flashes during the day. She's not really able to pinpoint them to around her cycle. She's just saying it's completely erratic because it's normal for our body temperature to rise just before we come on our period, for example. But this lady will say, no, I'm having these night sweats and hot flashes anytime. They're just random. Joint pains. So this lady's actually got rheumatoid arthritis, but she's saying that her joint pains have just got so much worse mm. than the years. Low libido, depression, anxiety, days when she literally just wants to scream and throw everything out the window and just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, listening to this, I'm like, well, she's running her own business. We know business owners that that yeah. can have a lot of pressure. She's managing three kids. I can't even imagine running a business <laughs> and looking after three children. Like, I feel like my clients are my oh, children what? that need looking after. And then she's got these elderly parents as well that she's also concerned about. And it's, it's a lot, right? And I think some people, and I see this in my clients, and I'm sure I've done this myself in the past, is you're almost so busy that it's so easy just to push all these symptoms down and just almost like brush them off because yeah. you're like, oh, it's just life. It's just hectic. And then not actually realizing that there's some imbalances going on. Exactly. And one of the other ones, actually, there's a huge complaint, weight gain around the middle. Mm. So this particular lady that I'm thinking of would just say, as she said about all the other symptoms, I haven't changed anything. Why do I have this excess fat around the middle that I just can't get rid of? It's so frustrating. And these are, on top of all the stress that these women already have, so these three small children running her own business, all of these symptoms are yet another stress. And the fat gain around the middle. Some women are kept awake at night by that. It's a real frustration for, for these women. So this particular woman would have actually said to me, maybe this is early menopause. Because as soon as a woman starts to have hot flushes, for example, or night sweats, that's what they associate it with because society, you know, that's what's out there. It's like you're, ha you're either having normal periods or if you're getting things like hot flushes, it must be bent menopause. And if you're 43, then you're hitting early menopause. So if she didn't, get any different information that's what she might be running with and then again another stress why is this happening so early what's mm. wrong with me what's wrong with my body what's wrong with my hormones when actually there's nothing wrong with you at all everything's happening as it should it's all normal as in it's normal to have this perimenopause phase but your symptoms are not they're a normal characteristic of perimenopause but they shouldn't be so severe and that's what we can manage through, you know, the various diet and lifestyle and exercise. 
Yeah, I love that. The analogy I kind of use with my clients is your hormones are always going to be fluctuating, whether you're in perimenopause or just within a normal menstrual cycle. There's always going to be times when certain things are higher and certain things are lower. But it's almost like the hormones turn up the volume on what is already imbalanced. So if there's already inflammation, that's going to be amplified, like your client experienced with the joint pain and the rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. If there's already stress, things are going to feel 10 times more stressful. If there's already digestive imbalance, that's going to be heightened. So all these other systems that are imbalanced, it's like turning up the dial, turning up the volume due to this perimenopausal phase. So what do you do? Your your client comes to you with all these challenges and people listening to this podcast. What do you do with them? Where do they go from here? Well, I mean, there's various different things, but the main, I guess the main, main, main areas to focus on at least first would be addressing the levels of stress, the various life loads, I like to call them and addressing sleep, which I put in the life load box anyway, as a stressor. But stress is just the most important place to start because of that, as we were saying, that progesterone is naturally lower in this phase. So you don't have that nice, naturally calming hormone anymore. Uh, You don't have as much of it. So everything is heightened. So that's why anxiety increases and lack of sleep, the kind of insomnia symptoms will increase. So we need to address what I, you know, we t- you talk about it a lot, the parasympathetic nervous system state. Parasympathetic being the rest and restore part of the nervous system versus the sympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight. Most women in the perimenopausal phase tend to be in fight or flight all the time, which just exacerbates these symptoms tenfold. And, and I cannot, you know, I can't emphasize that enough. So what we want to be, the first thing I would look at with a client is addressing their daily life load. How much of the day are they spending in their sympathetic nervous system state, which as I said, for most of them is 90% of it. And the other 10% that they're not in that phase is just when they're asleep, usually. The mm-hmm. kind of five to seven hours that they manage to get, they are managing to be in rest and restore. But other than that, as soon as they wake up in the morning, especially if they're fueled by caffeine as well for the day, they're just keeping themselves on and on and on, switched on all day long. They start the day running around, getting their kids ready. And even women, I'm speaking to women that don't have children, it could just be that they're getting themselves ready for the day, their busy work, commute to work, for example, or their high pressured meeting at 9am 9, 9 that they have to be on time for, whether that's on Zoom, like is at the moment during the pandemic. And then this sort of you know meeting after meeting or just commitment after commitment, whether professional, family or personal, is just all day. And then they might throw in a, I don't know, a hit workout in between or a, a long run or a spin class or something like that in the middle of the day. And then they keep going, keep going. And then it's just sorting everything out, whether it's just for yourself or for your family. Then you've got the evening where you're thinking about tomorrow and you're prepping this and you're prepping that and you're sorting this and you're cleaning that and you're cooking that and tidying this. Before you know it, it's nine o'clock and you're just absolutely exhausted and you might watch a little bit of TV and then take yourself off to bed fresh from watching TV, scrolling social media, WhatsApp, and it's just constant all day. Yeah, I feel exhausted just listening to that. But also, (laughs) it resonates so much with me because there was a time when once upon a time that was my life. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a message I just want to keep on hitting home for the people who are not in perimenopause yet, but are listening to this podcast is the sooner you sort out your lifestyle balance, the better, because it's not just something that you address when you 
get into perimenopause and now you're symptomatic. It's something that is eating away at your health every single day until it's something that you address. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I wish that all the habits that I have firmly in place now, as you know, we speak about this all the time, my non-negotiable habits, I wish that they'd been in place from 35. And I said to you earlier that when I was 35, I noticed, I started to notice changes. Body just wasn't responding in the way it used to. I wasn't getting away with it in inverted commas. And I wish I knew all this back then and started all this back then. Yeah. You know, because I went through a really stressful period between the ages of 30, 36 and 40, I'd say. And that was me when I was building my business after I left my employment job and started to build my business myself. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. It was a whole new change and i was that person who was in sympathetic nervous system state from morning literally from like six in the morning till about 3 a.m for about three years so i did that but i wish i'd known at the time that that was the right way to live so yeah it absolutely applies to everybody yeah and i resonate so much with that as well because when i moved down to bournemouth and i took my business online that was also like a hugely hugely stressful time and even though I was eating really well, I was exercising, I was even doing some yoga classes and actually had a lot of self-care in my life. I think that continuously just being in my sympathetic nervous system is why I found myself in the the current position I I had with my health. And in a way, I feel a little bit sad because I'm like, I'm probably only just going to recover from chronic fatigue and then I'll hit perimenopause. (laughs) But, But the worst case scenario would be not recovering and then having perimenopause amplify everything. So I feel like I'm in a race to the finish line now to get really well before the next challenge comes. Yeah, it's a little bit depressing when you think about it. <laughs> I think, though, because all the, the lifestyle that you lead now, all the great habits that you have firmly in place, it doesn't necessarily, you know, just because you've had, the, you know, struck, struggling with chronic fatigue, that you would necessarily find that perimenopause is hard for you because you have all of these great foundational things in place already. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. I'm going to come, come looking for you if that's not yeah. the case. So is there anything else you wanted to say about that life load? Any tips? Like if someone's just like, oh my God, my life right now, I don't even know where to begin. Is there something practical or easy that somebody could do to start to bring that balance back in? What do you usually find your clients are able to do? Well, I mean, I usually start by explaining it by sort of saying that framing it around cortisol so that's the stress hormone that's obviously uh, released in in response to any sort of stressor and it can be a mental stress or a physical stress and obviously mental stresses are around us everywhere we can't necessarily get away from them but what we want to be reducing is the activities or factors in our day-to-day life that stimulate the release of cortisol because we have enough of that stimulation already with a lot of our life load and for example even living through a pandemic this year is going to be a stressful thing for everyone in different ways but it will be so i like to to explain what the cortisol reducing i guess activities and factors are and then ask okay how can we start to weave these into your day as much as possible to take you away from that 16 or so hours of being in your fight or flight which is high cortisol how can we start to reduce those num- the number of hours that you're in that state by incre- increasing the activities or factors that help to reduce that and put you in your parasympathetic nervous system state your rest and repair so i'll talk clients through 
various things that they can do so for example gentle yoga i like to say gentle yoga because there's lots of different types of yoga and some of mm. it can be more as you know it can be more energetic there's powerful. a difference between like rocket yoga and yeah. like hatha right <laughs> exactly so i always like to say a kind of gentle yoga practice where focus is always on the breath but where it is just this hour long or however long you do it for half an hour 20 minutes where you're focused on your breath so the type of breathing that you'll do in a yoga class helps to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's calming to the nervous system. It's reducing cortisol. It's telling your brain everything's okay. Life is good. You can calm the adrenal glands. You don't need to get them fighting off into action and re releasing the stress hormones. So also things like meditation, which is a scary word for a lot of, a lot of people. They're like, well, I can't even begin to try and start to meditate. But when I talk about meditation, it could be anything. It could be three minutes, five minutes where you're just sitting and focusing on your breath, preferably eyes closed, silence, and you can just focus on taking those lovely, slow, long, deep breaths. Or you can get into a more advanced meditation practice over time, but that's, you know, anything like that helps. But there's an app that I love to use called Insight Timer, which I think you use as well. So there's lots of different guided meditations on there. There's something called Yoga Nidra, which I absolutely love, and I know you do as well, Anna. You can just listen to those recordings. And Yoga Nidra is just a late, basically a lying down sleep meditation, which is, I think, so powerful. For me, it's been a really, really, really important tool. I found some that are as short as 20 minutes. And if I have a really, really busy day, and luckily at the moment we're all working from home, so it's easier to do this. I just find these 20 minutes to just do this lovely lying down meditation. And I feel so re-energized, revitalized afterwards. So even just something like that incorporated into your day to help bring you into that parasympathetic nervous system state. A walk in nature, getting out and exposing your eyes to green spaces. It could just be a simple, small green space across the road, or you might be lucky enough to live near a big park or a big common. I guess those are the, the main practices I'd want people to start increasing into their day. And it could even just be a quick 10 minutes to read your favorite, to read a good novel that you're enjoying, you know. So I feel like it's really, it might be a good time to talk about exercise because you've already said, I want people doing gentle yoga and you were quite specific that you don't want it to be too intense because I know like in my 20s, I used to do HIT, I used to do CrossFit, I really used to kick my own booty at the gym. <laughs> and what I noticed probably actually since turning 30 is my workouts just got slower and slower and I was you know where I was maybe working out like five times a week then it was like four times a week then it was three times a week then it was two times a week I, I see this with a lot of clients they're still stuck in this mindset it was like when I was 20 I could just do this this and this and then the pounds would fall away but it changes as your body changes so talk a little bit more about that Yes, yeah, so that's, I'm really, really passionate about it because I, again, like you were saying, people, and I was the same, you think you do all this type of exercise in your 20s and like you said, you would get into shape quite quickly or maintain a good weight with that particular type of exercise and you'd feel really good for it. And then you reach sort of 30, 35 and actually not only are you finding that you can't recover from these sessions as well as you could before, um, and they're really just knocking you for six now, but also maybe things like your weight isn't as, kind of well-managed as it might have been 
in your 20s and the same the things that you were doing then to manage your weight just isn't working anymore and in fact if you're anything like me it's going the opposite way it's starting to cause you to to gain body fat and thinking but why when i'm doing all this exercise if not more than i was and again like, like you said it's, it's the change in hormones we what works for a body at 25 years old 28 years old does not work for a woman's body at 38 years old I think I love to embrace that because the, the way that I exercise and move my body now is so much more enjoyable than the way I used to do it in my 20s. In my 20s, it was about punishment and my early 30s up to sort of 35. It was about punishment. It was about putting my body through hell, basically, to either compensate for the food I wanted to eat or it was it was never a, a form of self-care. Whereas now the way I train is a form of self-care. I enjoy it. It makes me strong. It helps me feel built up rather than beaten down that mm. kind of way. And again, yeah, it's just something that we have, we, we need to embrace. So when I talked about yoga, not being like a really powerful one, it's not that we can't ever do that sort of training, but it's just that when we're in this perimenopausal phase, cortisol levels are already quite high for the woman of that age anyway. And without that, with that lack of progesterone, we don't have that extra support to help calm the nervous system. And if we put on top of that, these really high intense training classes like HIT, you know, I speak to women who are doing five, 45 minute HIT classes a week, for example, or three or four long runs every week, spin classes. It's kind of like adding insult to injury. It's adding fuel to that fire. It's breaking us down rather than building us up. It's not supportive of the way that our hormones are working at that phase. Versus, like I said, things like more gentler yoga, which is helping to support the body, but then also things like introducing weight sort of strength training as opposed to the so training that's going to build muscle, stimulate the hormones in a more positive way than, for example, the high intensity interval training and CrossFit's great, but too much of the kind of Metcons, too many of those per week, for example, is just adding fuel to the fire. Yeah, I think it's important that you mention you do want that resistance training because as estrogen decreases, we're going to lose bone density and that could be a problem later in life. Yeah. So we definitely want that resistance training in. But I think it's within each individual's unique point of tolerance. And so... Yeah. Like if I've resistance trained my whole life, maybe my capacity for resistance training is going to be totally different to somebody who's 35, just thought, well, maybe I should lift some weights. So I think it's about really finding your unique level of tolerance, isn't it? And that's going to look different yeah. for different people based on the extent of their hormone imbalances, their genetics, what else they have going on in their life and, and their history. Yeah. And I usually just say to, to clients, for example, if they're doing... Just a random example, if they're doing three spin classes a week and one kind of circuit class, which does include some weights, but it's still quite a high speed circuit class, let's say for 45 minutes, like, you know, nonstop, I would say to them, okay, let's try just replacing two of those sessions with more restorative activities. So leave the other three and let's just take two of them away and switch those for a nice gentle yoga class, for example, hour-long walk or something in your local park. And every client that I've had, including myself, will notice a positive response to their hormones. They will. The first thing they'll say is, I'm sleeping better. The second thing they'll say is, I feel less anxious. And the third thing is usually, 
I seem to be losing weight around my middle. I feel slimmer in my clothes. When I first started cutting down on all the, the, the intense, the more intense training that I was doing, that's what I noticed straight away. I wasn't specifically trying to lose any weight at the time. It's just something that I noticed as a, a, a nice welcome side effect from doing that. The most important thing is, you know, not to say to somebody, right, you can't do any of that anymore. A lot of women will say they really enjoy those sorts of things. Mm. So it's just about starting there, seeing what sort of improvements they get. If there's still work to do, maybe we need to change up those other three sessions that have left. Keep three sessions in if that's what you're enjoying, but let's change them in a way that just makes them a little bit less what we know as to be catabolic, so breaking down the, the body to more building up and supporting your hormones. Yeah, I think that there's such a myth that more is better. And yeah. it's like the more I can work out and then also the more I can cut my calories back, which I think we're going to yeah. talk about in a moment, that's going to be the answer. And a huge part of it is that it's, there's so much conditioning, isn't there, through the media and everything. And especially with a lot of women, I think there is this tendency to be this A-type personality pushing hard in various areas of life. And exercise is a passion. It's something that they don't necessarily want to let go of, but there's also this unhelpful relationship with exercise where it's about control and where it's about self-worth and looking a certain way. And to give up those intense sessions is like, oh, this is really scary because I don't know who I am without this. Um, But then when you surrender to it and you're like, whoa, yeah, I've got more energy. I'm feeling this anxious. I'm losing weight. I'm sleeping better the results speak for themselves, don't they? Exactly. And I think you have to experience that to before you'll be comfortable with it. So when I first started doing restorative, specifically labelled restorative yoga classes, 60-minute class where you're practically lying down, you, you'll move positions about four or five times and you'll hold each lovely relaxing stretch position for anywhere up to 10 minutes. And all you do is just move between these poses. So it's like a sleep kind of you're doing it all in your sleep and it's the most beautiful hour but when I first started doing those sorts of classes there was a part of me that used to say this is a waste of an hour I could be be doing other things or I could could be lifting weights or lifting weights is a great thing to do but I used to you know I just used to think this is just a waste of an hour Mm. and now I will passionately do restorative yoga two to three times a week and you kind of feel lazy as well. You think, well, what benefit is this? Like, I'll sleep tonight when I go to bed. Why do I need to do this now? It's so silly. But now I just, because the benefits speak for themselves for me, I know that if I let a week go by and I haven't done those kind of things in my week, and it has just been all go, go, busy with work, I've done a few decent workouts for good to, for my hormones, but still that's kind of all I've done and I haven't done the restorative stuff. I know I, my sleep changes, everything changes. I start to feel more anxious. So yeah, the results speak for themselves, but it takes time to get used to Mm. incorporating those things and embracing them and saying, no, this is an hour well spent, not a waste. Yeah. And I think that's got to do with this like belief we have that we're only worthy when we're being productive or when we're achieving or accomplishing X, Y, and Z. And so then to like, just shift and be like, I'm just lying here on the floor this is a waste of time because I'm not achieving. It's a mental shift that has to happen, but that hour on the floor is going to give you back three, four, five, ten 10 hours of your life because you're not losing time and energy because you're exhausted. Yeah. And I always say to myself as well, it's things like 
I'm at the stage where I can incorporate one to two strength training sessions a week. I know we speak about chronic fatigue quite a lot because I'm also suffering in a way with it, but I've managed to get myself to a point where I can do these one to two sessions a week. Some weeks I just know it has to be one and I have to leave it there. Another week I know I know how to listen to my body now, so I know when I can do that second session. But when I do the restorative yoga class where I'm just lying on the floor practically for an hour, it's almost as if that's allowing me to recover better from the strength training session that I have done that week or allowing me to even do it in the first place. I basically tell myself, you have to have this balance. If you don't have the balance, that's when everything just falls apart. And that's what mm-hmm. I like to try and teach my clients is that there are certain things we can do, but we must balance them out. And then there's yeah. times where people can't do that at all. I have, as we both know, we speak about this a lot. I have clients that can't do any training for a long time, any sort of exercise apart from yoga, if that, and walking. And then we have to slowly build them up again to be able to do any more than that. Yeah. So, yeah. That, that's but, where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. So, so we've talked about, I think it sounds like your number one is let's create this balanced lifestyle load. And part of that is actually creating this balanced exercise load, because if you're doing too much intense exercise, and I would say at the level that's inappropriate for your body, which is different to everybody else's body, and is also different to the body you had five years ago, if you're finding the right balance for exercise, you're actually reducing that lifestyle load. And so... I know because we have our little rants about this in private when we meet for green tea and chocolate brownies is that we both have a real bugbear with calories or people who think that they just need to cut their calories back to lose weight. So let's talk about nutrition, perimenopause, calorie counting and all of that. Okay. Well, yes. So, I mean, one of the worst things that a woman can do for her hormones is cut her calories add over, I don't, yeah, over-exercise, but as we said, that over-exercise in inverted commas is different for everybody, what that level is. But just doing too much and restricting your calories too much is just a recipe for disaster for hormonal balance, which, as we've said, during perimenopause is already erratic. Estrogen's on a roller coaster, progesterone is low, cortisol is high already because of life load and the fact that progesterone is so low. So we just don't want to do anything that adds fuel to that fire. And calorie restriction is one of those massive fuels for that fire. Also, thyroid is really important. You know, we want to make sure we have a healthy thyroid gland that's producing enough thyroid hormone to regulate all of our metabolism, metabolic system. And the worst thing we can do for thyroid health is restrict calories. So yeah, it's a huge bugbear, but what's going on today is that it's still so popular. It's still so common in everyday media, social media, it's everywhere. You still get fitness professionals, for example, talking about, I'll put you on a four-week low-calorie plan. It's just everywhere. So I don't blame people for thinking, for still thinking that that's the way they need to go. And again, that's it. Another thing I work really hard on with my clients is to help change their mindset and understand that actually more is better when it comes to food. And again, there's always a there's a there's There's a a ceiling. Yeah, Yeah, there is a ceiling. But like low fat, for example, it's such a nightmare for your hormones. Your hormones are made the different types of fats that come from all the different fats, and the fact that it's still demonised. Fat is still demonised, but actually every fat is beneficial apart from the not so good kind of fried trans fats but that's a whole other podcast I'm sure yeah so 
Talk me through then, how do you approach someone's nutrition? Have you shared the case study of that client of yours and all the symptoms that she was having? Where do you begin then with, you know, somebody's maybe noticing that they've got these symptoms, they work, they're working on their lifestyle load, they're refining their exercise balance. What do they need to be thinking about? What are the priorities for diet? So the priority for me would be to get their blood sugar levels balanced. Keeping blood sugar levels under control will keep the hormone insulin under control. Too much insulin will increase inflammation, which is one of the big drivers of hormonal symptoms. So heavy, painful periods, for example, sore, sore tender breasts. It kind of drives up all those excess estrogen symptoms that we all know about for PMS and perimenopause. But also it's going to have a knock-on impact to cortisol, the, the stress hormone. So blood sugar highs and lows basically will have an impact on that, on that whole entire balance. So the first thing I'd want to do is make sure there's enough protein in the diet, specifically at breakfast. And I say that because that's the first meal of the day where most women just don't get enough protein because it's much easier if you're eating all foods, it's much easier at lunch and dinner to, to, to get that protein in. It's kind of more normal, isn't it? Just get some protein in at those two meals. But if breakfast is more of a like cereal-based or toast-based, then the protein is quite low. So that would be the first kind of thing that I would be looking at is quality sources of protein at every single meal to help balance her blood sugar levels. I'd also be looking at the sources of carbohydrates. So the particular woman that I was thinking of earlier would have been more reliant on the, the refined white flour sorts of carbohydrates. So the things that spike your blood sugar levels quite quickly. So wraps, regular toast, all your, uh, you know, pastries, yeah. Yeah, croissants and things like that for breakfast, toast and jam, that sort of thing. I was just thinking as well is that I I feel like as with exercise, this is also so unique to the individual because as your hormones are changing, your carbohydrate tolerance in your 40s is going to be different to your carbohydrate tolerance in your 20s. And like, I know in my 20s, like I could just, really eat whatever and now like I have to be so careful like even like having too much like not even too much fruit like a piece of fruit or a small portion of sweet potato can really mess with my blood sugar so I think like the things that you've mentioned are the definite priorities but also understanding that if you work with a practitioner like yourself then you can really learn to refine that that very specific balance for you yeah yeah, I mean, they, they call that the your own, you know, unique carbohydrate tolerance. We are all unique, so we all have our own different one. But with most of my clients, when I first start working with them, the first piece of work is to switch the types of carbohydrates that they're going for over to the more nutrient-dense, high-fibre. So these carbohydrates would break down much slower for, for these women into sugar and will cause less blood sugar spikes and coupled with protein even better because protein will help to reduce those spikes. And yeah, then after that, we can start refining the actual amount. I definitely feel that for most of my clients, that's the first place we need to address. And then I'd want to make sure they have enough good fats. That would be the next step. I'm yet to meet a woman that I first start working with who is eating enough good fats. I've never in seven years met anybody who is eating enough fats. So that would be things like olive oil and, you know, avocado, oily fish, kind of salmon, mackerel, that kind of thing, nuts and seeds. I would be wanting to make sure coconut, I'd want to make sure there's enough of that in the diet, that they're not scared of it as well. You know, a lot of clients will still say, well, can I actually have half an avocado? Are you sure that's okay? And one day I'll say, yeah, it is fine. 
obviously, again, like you were saying, everything has its feeling. We don't want to go crazy. But most of the women that I start working with need to start realising that you shouldn't be scared of the extra food and the extra calories. And in fact, that's what you need. And then we can make sure once they're used to that and happy with it and comfortable, we can just keep refining that over time and making sure they're not going too far the other way as well. Yeah. I always think of it like a seesaw. And um, yeah. I have this experience as well with clients. It's like most clients is like there's loads of carbs on the one side of the seesaw, which like is weighing it down. And you kind of want to be taking some of those carbs off and putting more of the fats on the other side of the seesaw. So yeah. then they find that balance and I think I kind of thought like surely everybody knows right now that like fat doesn't make you fat it's good for your heart but you're so right I hadn't thought about it until now how many people do I see who are actually really if I'm getting them to count macros or something on my fitness pal it's like 30 grams of fat 40 grams of fat a day and I'm like no wonder you feel the way you do <laughs> you need to eat more fat yeah and I have clients that will say when they first come to me I do eat lots of fat and then I will look at the food diary that which we kind of look at before we start working together. And there are fats there, but nowhere near enough. But that client, because they are including some fats, believe that they're having lots of fats because there's still that fear. Mm. So you've got the people who have no fats whatsoever, people that have said, no, I will have some, but they're still too scared. So it's literally just some, it's like the tiniest amount. So there's still so much more work to do. And it's yeah. like, I think you and I, in our profession, we will take for granted easily. We can quite easily take for granted mm. that people realize now, but no. I heard this term recently, which is called the knowledge curse is like when you know so much, like, cause you've just been like completely immersed in all of this now. I think, I mean, I graduated almost 12 years ago. So like, it's yeah. been a long time. You yeah. just completely forget that what it's like to be a lay person. It might be the same for you, but my boyfriend, Mark keeps me in check. So I'll talk to him about certain things and he'll just say, whoa, 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 back up. Can you, can you say it in layman's terms? I just don't understand it. And it's really, really good check-in for me. It just reminds me that normal people don't understand this. So break it down a little bit. Yeah. 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 It's good to have someone keep you in check. Yeah. Um, so we talked about good protein with every meal, changing the quality and potentially quantity of the carbohydrates, upping the good fats. What else does a woman in her 40s need to be aware of nutritionally? So Oh, this is like the, the worst piece of advice that anyone ever wants. But reducing alcohol is just really important in this phase of life. And I try to avoid, even for myself, embracing that. And I try to avoid telling it to people. But I just got to that stage now where I say it openly. Before, I used to be scared to say it because people just don't want to hear that. They want to just walk away from you. The impact that alcohol can have or does have on our hormone is so significant, especially in our 40s. Again, it's about adding fuel to that fire and alcohol just does. It doesn't mean that we have to completely abstain, but it's about understanding that even more, anything more than just one glass of wine, I'm sorry to say, does just have quite a significant impact on the body's ability or liver's ability to detoxify estrogen, which we need to be good. Yeah. And you know what? I think even though sometimes it's an awkward conversation to have with people, I also, I mean, I used to find it awkward. I don't care anymore. Um, yeah. But is most people know, 
most people are like, I yes. just have one glass of wine and I feel awful. I, I can't drink as much as I used to. And I think they know that it's not serving them. But I think it's also for a lot of people, it goes so much deeper. It's much more about the emotional connections, how they socialize, wanting to be part of the group. There's there's so much else going on there. But I think deep down, most people know that it's not working for them the older they get. Yeah, I, I think I'm a good person to to coach people into embracing that and owning it, I should say, because it took me a good few years to own it, to really own it and be confident enough to say to everybody around me, I don't drink, I don't want to drink, I'm not having that because it, it did, a lot of people did pass judgment, they couldn't understand it, but you always drink, why are you not, this is strange, what are you trying to be healthy and kind of passing judgment and you just feel really awkward, but I eventually, I'm, I'm now, I'm like, you, you know, I don't care anymore, <laughs> just what works for me. Good. So is there anything else? Well, I mean, I would always want to look at gut health as well. So that could be something that we might do on a bigger investigative scale with with stool testing, for example. But one of the simplest ways that I would address that initially is just making sure that they have plenty of vegetables. So how can I not mention vegetables? Of course, again, as a nutritional therapist, I always think that goes without saying, but it doesn't. So plenty of vegetables in the diet, all your different colors and types of non-starchy vegetables, greens, purples, reds, orange, yellow, half a plate at all your meals, how much vegetables can you get in at breakfast as well is important, but always half a plate of, of non-starchy vegetables and obviously including the root vegetables as well, the sweet potatoes, beetroot and parsnip, that kind of thing. But that is really helpful for supporting the beneficial bacteria growth in your gut, which is supportive of a healthy gut. And then like fermented foods, if people are happy to include things like sauerkraut and kimchi, chewing really, really well. So those would be the kind of foundational pieces. But the vegetables will have an effect on, you know, that's needed for all sorts of different reasons for hormonal health. Those are the kind of key dietary factors we'd look at first. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel in my practice, like everything that you've talked about, that's that's what I call low hanging fruit. That's like yeah, the foundations, exactly. right? So yeah. you start, you start there. You're laying the foundations of a good balance of exercise, a good balance of blood sugar, a good balance of nutrition, and you know, addressing that lifestyle load. And then you, you kind of just see what's left. And then it might be appropriate to add on some supplements. It might be appropriate to do some testing and just see if something's really out of whack that needs a little bit more support would that be your approach as well yeah definitely so exactly those would be the lowest hanging fruit another thing i didn't really mention but i would always want to be looking at the nuts and the kind of seeds as well i like to make sure there's pumpkin seeds and flax seed and sunflower seeds for example so just really increasing the, the plants and the good fats uh, you know balance the blood sugar so that would be the lowest hanging fruit but then like you said there'll always be again with perimenopause clients, there will probably always be a need for supplements with things like magnesium being really important just because of its beneficial effects on calming the nervous system, helping to reduce those stress hormones and helping to balance sleep as well. It's something I can't live without and I think you agree. B vitamins is usually something I'll always have to put in extra for my clients as well, even though we'll increase that the B rich foods usually they need that extra support especially b6 zinc that kind of thing as well we might have to look at that so yeah i do use testing as well i use the dutch test not with every client it really just depends on like you were saying we start with the lowest hanging fruit and see what's left for some clients we don't need to go down that route but for others we, we just do and sometimes clients just really want to know more mm -hmm. so we go down that road yeah, I've just actually got a Dutch test now from a client and it's really interesting. Like 
sometimes it's just really worth it to test because like we could not have guessed what's happening with her hormones I would have guessed the complete opposite but Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so sometimes sometimes it is really helpful to test so when when someone is like doing all the right things, they've addressed that exercise balance, lifestyle low, they're eating really well, maybe even taking a few really great supplements and it's something is still off. That's yeah. usually a good time to do some testing. Yeah, exactly. And then it's just a, a constant process of refinement really, mm. isn't it? Yeah. And also I think like understanding that life happens and you, sometimes you do get thrown these curveballs and as you said, the more that these habits are embedded and refined, you can maybe get knocked a little bit by something that comes in life, but you don't just, you don't get completely bowled over. And and that's what keeps us resilient. So is there anything else you wanted to share about health and hormones after 40? Um, no, I mean, I think we didn't really t- talk about sleep that much, but I think we talked about life, reducing life load and, you know, helping to calm the nervous system. But I would definitely, it's just, I really would want to emphasize the stress side of things and sleep. I think that's the only other thing I probably haven't emphasized enough is that we, it is a time where we really do need to prioritize sleep. It just has to be made something that is very important and almost like a non-negotiable to get to bed by a certain time. For me personally, I found that I have to have a really robust evening routine to gear my brain and my body up for a good night's sleep. And I have to do it every night. And I, it's just something, again, that I, it's a non-negotiable. Obviously, we're going to have the odd night where you might go out, so you, you won't have this bedtime routine. But if that's just few and far between, that's fine. But for the most part, the evenings that you're at home, which is probably most, having this lovely routine that just helps to gear you up for a good night's sleep, I find really, for me, so important. So what does your routine look like? (laughs) So the biggest thing is the kind of dim lights in the evening from around seven-ish. So I have a a lovely dim lamp in the um, living room. I have horrible, really bright ceiling lights in the bathroom with no dimmer switch. So I light a a big candle in the bathroom so that we can use it through the evening and it's fine. But the last thing I would want to do at, say, 9.30, let's say, when I go and brush my teeth, is turn on those big lights in the bathroom because they're just going to send a signal to my brain to release cortisol because they're just going to wake me up. My brain's going to think it's it's time to, to stimulate, basically. So I will keep the lights dim everywhere. I set the bedroom up with a nice dim lamp so that when I'm ready to go into bed, I don't have to have the big light on. Uh, So that's a huge thing for me because it's that sending that signal to the brain that it's time to wind down and produce melatonin, our sleep hormone, which is difficult if there's bright lights everywhere. And I find that I'm just really sensitive to that. I think some people are more genetically sensitive than others, but still a valuable tool to use regardless. Yeah, and it's something you can test, you know, it might not be a problem for you, but if sleep is an issue for somebody, maybe that's something they can start testing and see if it helps to make a difference. And then I'll always have a good kind of hour before I want to go to bed where I won't touch my phone. Those two things are the biggest game changers for me, the dim lights and not looking at my phone for a good hour before I go to bed. So I I do have a cutoff when I won't kind of check anything after it's usually kind of eight-ish I don't check anything on my phone and I've turned notifications off anyway. So I always have to go into my apps to read any, to see any new messages anyway. So I just make sure that those things don't come up on my screen. And you like to go to sleep. I'm sorry. You like to eat dinner by a certain time, don't you? Yes. That's another thing as well. Yes. Well, at the moment I'm finishing dinner by 7.30. 
Um, and that again has been a bit of a game changer. If I, if I eat dinner around half eight, I definitely notice that my sleep is affected. I just don't have as restful a sleep. What we don't realize is that our digestive system takes quite a long time to break down our food and it's an active process. It takes what, two to three hours. So the later we eat, the more work that's being done. Also because the digestive system is slower at night anyway, that could be for me why it's impacting my sleep. So yeah, that's another rule. Yeah, I've noticed that because I usually like to eat by six. I'm, I'm like super early eater, but I also go to bed quite early as well. And I've got an aura ring, which checks all my data. And if I go out for a meal, if I eat too much in the evening, if I eat late, it really shows in my aura data that my heart rate stays so much higher in the first half of the night. And yeah, you can just see that the stress load that that's having on the body, which is, yeah, um, yeah it's quite interesting when you've got that physical data which shows it to you you know you can't you can't cheat yourself exactly and I think as well when I do explain this to some clients they kind of have this daunted look on their face as if to say oh my goodness you know is that how it has to be now and I'll say you can have the odd you know this isn't this is applying to 90% of the time so if there's a night you've got a dinner reservation and it's not until eight and as long as those things are few and far between it shouldn't be a problem it's when we're doing it every single night that it has such a big impact yeah, totally. And I think it's really important because some people can be quite all or nothing and they get really yeah. anxious if they feel that they've got to do something 100% of the time. Yeah. So yeah, just understanding that it's about what you do most of the time, not necessarily have to do these things all the time. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to share? Um, no, just stress. I think I've covered it all really. Sleep. Yeah. This is obviously just an hour long podcast and hormones are complex and we could go down a whole rabbit hole of details, but I think this is a low hanging fruit and this is, these are things you want to get right in your life, whether you're 40 plus or not, because it's all about building those foundations. But before we wrap up, Francesca, tell everybody a little bit more about how they can find you. I know you've got a group program, which is starting in January. So if people are listening to this and they're like, yeah, I really need to work on some of this stuff. How do they reach out? How do they get more help and support from you? Yeah, well, my website is probably not the easiest spelling, but it's francescaliparotti.com. So I'm sure you'll put my spelling of my name in the show notes. And I'm running a 12-week group program obviously online via zoom in january so we're starting on monday the 18th of january for 12 weeks and it's called rebalance and thrive and basically it's about rebalancing all different areas of your life and your health so obviously hormones are going to be a huge focus in the program rebalancing gut health so it's basically rebalancing everything in your life and body and your health to help you thrive and enjoy and you know whatever phase you're in whether that's 30s or 40s it's going to be beneficial for for everybody in those kind of decades of life that's 12 weeks it's starting on the 18th of january you can find information of that on my website and there's a tab for the rebalance and thrive program under work with me and i'm on instagram as rebalance underscore and underscore thrive amazing well i'm sure after listening to all the incredible knowledge you have to share there'll be people reaching out to you to participate in your program it's been so amazing interviewing you on the show i can't believe that it's taken us this long to get you on but you're here now and yeah it's been an absolute pleasure and um thank you everybody for listening thank you see you next time Thank you for listening to another episode of Kombucha and Color. 
If you have enjoyed or been inspired by our conversations today, please leave a five-star review on Stitcher or iTunes. Don't forget to share with friends and family. This will help other women find inspiration to live life bright. We'd love to connect with you on social media. Come find me, Shay, by searching Shay Dyer Yoga on Facebook or Instagram. You can find me, Anna, by searching Anna Marsh on Facebook or Instagram. And remember, you can always refer to the links in the show notes. See you next week.